Do you know this song? After December 19th, you almost certainly do. Poet Kai Hoffman and composer Carl Nielsen's Den Danske Sang and an Ung Blond P, the Danish song is a young blonde girl, became the centerpiece in one of Denmark's most furious debates on values. The song was sung at an intern meeting at CBS and a teacher complained that she felt excluded by the song because she looked and was far from a young blonde girl. This led to associated professor and leader of the meeting, Mass Mordhorst, apologizing to the teacher and stating that he would not sing that song again. And then the media got hold of the story, leading to a massive uproar in the public. But how come that this incident set such a fire in the debate? We asked communication consultant Anne-Christine Cramont and anthropologist Karen Lisa Salomon if they could up our understanding of the song that for a while effectively shattered the Christmas spirits. But first, let's visit the voices that you hear in the background. These voices belong to the people who showed up in front of CBS to sing Den Danske Sang and Ung Blond P to show their protest against the actions of Mass Morthorst and the teacher, a gathering led by conservative politician Nikolaj Bø. So just uh, very briefly, can you tell me uh, why you're here and what you're doing here? There has been this debate about uh, old Danish songs and uh, if they still can be sung, and uh, and I th- thought it was a good um, opportunity to uh, to put some focus on uh, the the common cultural ga- ground we stand on, because I think it's very important that we still can sing the old Danish songs. Even if someone feel excluded by the common cultural grounds? Yes, because I think it's a misunderstanding. Uh, this song, which the debate has been about, is it's... Uh, a question of symbols. It's not a question of uh, that you have to be blonde and uh, stuff like that. Uh, and uh, we have to to be a part of the same uh, cultural foundation and uh, historical background. And that also goes for uh, for people from uh, from other countries and other ethnical backgrounds. So, what signal are you afraid that CBS is sending when they apologize for singing a song like uh, Den Sang? I'm afraid that uh, that it will be impossible to. To uh, to sing the old Danish songs, and uh, I think it's a, it's a misunderstanding. We should uh, sing our songs, and we should uh, make new uh, groups in the society a part of that cultural heritage that we have in Denmark. Even if uh, it can end up uh, excluding them. Yes, but I, I think it it shouldn't exclude them, and I, I don't see any reason why why it should. So I would like to, uh, to put emphasis on uh, the beautiful songs, and uh, that they're not excluding anyone. They uh, they belong to all of us. But how come that a case like this can make such an, and even manages to bring people onto the streets? We asked Chief Consultant in Communication at Ehrenberg Sørensen, Anne-Christine Cramont, what constitutes a shitstorm and why this case became such a massive one. Well, a shitstorm is like, um, it, it's it's when everybody starts talking about a certain case, when opinion makers and media and um, uh, social media starts um, discussing one particular case and often it's not something that the company organization or whatever who's uh, who's the center of the shitstorm that they even talked about or discussed or had an idea that this could arise as a shitstorm it's some it's 
Or, uh, almost uh, always something that's been in the blind angle of the company or person or wh- whoever is the center of the shitstorm. So how did all this start? Well, actually, it started even before Kristli Daublad published the article about the meeting at CBS. Earlier that month, one of the leading figures of the organization, Front, whose purpose is to create a university environment without discrimination, had mentioned the specific case from CBS to Kristli Daublad during an interview about the general work of Front. How often does these uh, shitstorms happen on such a random basis or it were kind of out of CBS hands, right? Well, we see more and more that like uh, these shitstorms about semantics. Um, we had uh, last week uh, uh, a DR, uh, Danish Broadcast Association reporter, uh, commentator, Christina Kortsen. She briefly mentioned that uh, Danes are pig colored or whatever you say, same color as pigs. And like that small phrasing also created a, a, a shitstorm. She's had threats. Uh, people are trying to get her fired from her job because of like one little phrase she said on live TV, which could have been uh, like... Uh, sometimes when you're uh, live on TV, you, you just like paddle and say something that you didn't really think about. But we see more and more that it, it's it's coming down to semantics. So so um, um, so the media or opinion makers will grasp like one little word, one little phrasing, and then they'll create a huge storm around that. Next up came the publishing of the article in Kristi Daublad. The headline read, Folk High School Song Led to Violation Case at CBS, and the media mill really started turning. Every Danish newspaper took the story, and the social media started overflowing with comments about the event. Okay, so um, now we're gonna dive into the article that started it all. Yeah. Kristi Dagblad uh, breaks the story about the Danske Sang. At what point did you... Uh, As a, um, as a senior communication consultant, at what point did you realize that this would become a shitstorm? I could just see it on Facebook. I could see all my Facebook connections uh, writing about this, um, especially right wings um, who are super quick to jump on all these agendas because uh, every time you can um, uh, call out uh, some lefties for being ridiculous, that that gets done. So So I could see it right away. And also during the day when the story came out, um, there was a Facebook event, uh, which actually also happened to uh, to gather outside uh, CBS and sing the uh, Danske Sang and Ung Blond Pige. So it's sort of like, which was more like a gimmick or a joke, but it actually happened as well. So it's, uh, it was just, um, I thought to myself, oh, another one of these cases we just went through the university of copenhagen thing um but but people were really uh, upset about this and it's it showed rather quickly yeah what what elements does this uh, story have that makes it sort of shitstorm worthy or? it's because it's um the the thing we're discussing is a product of a danish cultural heritage And um, in these times, we see that um, there are a lot of people who want to protect this heritage. We want to protect what we come from and 
we want to uh, be able to do uh, things like we've always done them without having to uh, be considerate, considerate about everything to everyone. I think a lot of people uh, perceived it as a lack of understanding Danish culture. There was a woman who reacted, a brown woman in, in CBS who reacted very strongly to this song, but it's it's a very egocentric because some, somehow she's gotten into her own head that this is about excluding her uh, without really, um, if you go into the semantics of the, the song, it's It's not that Danes are young blonde girls. It's that the Danish song is a young blonde girl because traditionally uh, Danes are perceived like tall blonde people like uh, the rest of the uh, Scandinavians. So it's um, it also has uh, uh, it like taps into our own the Danes own identification of who we are, uh, and then some outsider is coming to criticize that. Um, yeah. Perfect. Uh, and, and now when we talk about semantics, uh, Mass Moorhorst, who were the leader of CBS, who gave this apology oh. to the researcher, he used the word hjemmeblinde, uh, we Danes are home blind. And, and that's a word I think a lot of people lashed onto. Mm-hmm. Is, are there any kind of trigger words in a shitstorm like this? Is the wording that important in creating a shitstorm? Yeah, but like we, uh, I just said before, it, it usually also have to do with the man, uh, semantics. And when he says "jemeblinde," um, he's also like it's it's super pr- uh, provocative. So if uh, I think a lot of Danes would perceive this as okay, so we can't um, uh, we can't have our own culture and traditions because that's sort of what he's saying in our own country. Um, A lot of the stuff he was out saying was super provocative to a lot of people. Also, the fact that um, he said that this song would not be sung anymore at CBS, um, and it's uh, it's sort of like it's it because the outcome of this is that this song is ruined. Like you can either sing it as a protest, uh, 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 or you can not sing it. Which so so either way, the song is ruined because now it's become a statement. Actually, the debate took off so drastically that president of CBS, Per Holden Andersen, had to engage himself. Yeah, and uh, next up is the management. Per Holden Andersen goes out in the media after this has become a very, very big case and says, well, you can mean and say whatever you want at CBS, but we are not going to ban the song. I, actually, he said, I can, I can sing the song for you right now if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think of this uh, damage control sort of in between stands like um what he he goes out out and says peter holland is the he's actually just um saying what the public wants to hear he's taking the public opinion um i saw um uh analysis that said that um 94% of the danish population uh thought that this was bullshit that the the way of handling it the uh, From CBS, that uh, that what Mass Morehouse says was really not in uh, in sync with the public opinion, and I think that um, uh, that that stating that this song is not forbidden, I can sing it for you right now, which also has like it's sort of humoristic, which is always a great way of uh, of uh, handling a, a crisis situation that you show that you have. Um, 
um, a sense of humor and that you can see this in a bigger perspective. But is there really any way when the internet is burning and uh, Twitter is burning, is there any way to stop or control a shitstorm like this? None at all. Like you just have to write it off. Um, And um, because it would have been whatever... uh, whatever someone from CBS would go out and say, it would be picked apart, analyzed, and and, and someone would have an opinion about this. Um, and But it's not like, it, it's also, it, it's, it's a shitstorm like this is going to blow over. It's not that the management uh, stole uh, 10 million out of uh, the budget and uh, bought a summer house in, uh, I don't know, Gran Canaria or whatever. It's It's sort of like, it's, it's on another level that's manageable, but you just have to write it off because it's something that taps into every Dane's identity. So so every everyone's going to have to... That's also because of social media. Everybody has an opinion about everything. So it's, it's, it's just something that you are going to have to wait to blow over. The debate was not only on social media. Actually, it made its way into Danish parliament. Almost every Danish politician had an opinion towards this, including our Prime Minister and the Minister of Justice, who engaged themselves deeply in the conflict, both dissociating themselves heavily from Mass Moorhorst's apology. Yeah, and as just mentioned, a lot of people had an opinion, including almost every Danish politician. Why do they engage that strongly in a shitstorm like this? It's because it's also tapping into um, uh, an agenda that's uh, very uh, relevant in Denmark at the moment. We're talking a lot about um, uh, immigrants and um, and how to handle uh, the cultural shifts that we're experiencing in, in Denmark. And for there's a, a, a part of the uh, right wing to which this agenda is just like... It, they can take the arguments they're using in, in this whole debate and they can just um, throw them at this case and, and, and make a stand in this. And it's um, it's just a way of like shaping your own messages in the media for them. Yeah, because it's quite a good opportunity. I think they got a lot of good publicity, uh, some paper and, uh, mm-hmm. and the Minister of State, Lars Løkke Rasmussen, right? Yeah, they did. Especially Pepe, he uh, he had a he did a small interview with the uh, TV two where he was just like sort of ca- caught off guards, and it was his instant reaction that you saw. It was like, no, this is too much. I I can't handle any more of this. It has to stop. And it was so instant. Um, and uh, also like he was uh, espre- expressing how many Danish people felt. So it it. Uh, he really got a, away with it in a very good way. Do you think it's a coincidence that that uh, both Lars Løkke and Søren Pape and so many other politicians uh, expressed their opinion that strongly just two weeks after they released a much much criticized law of finance? It's always about uh, getting the the public to uh, to like you. So yeah, I definitely think so. When you're releasing something that's probably a little unpopular within certain segments uh, of the populations it's very good to get a winner story uh, out just after that so it's definitely a way of like drowning other messages and uh, drowning um, other uh, questions from the media that that probably would have arised if this story didn't take up so much space 
but we also have politicians um, uh, Joachim B. Olsen and Lars Aslan Rasmussen who go who almost actually calls this researcher sick is that taking it too far or is, are there votes to gain on that as well there are votes to gain there are a lot a lot of people who find this sick and who are sick and tired of hearing about this and hearing about people's personal problems uh, being blown out in the media as if it was something that uh, mattered to to everybody so yeah there's definitely some votes in taking that stand as well with the turmoil that stretched from angry facebook comments to the top of danish parliament how will this incident affect the image of cbs cool and now if we go to the aftermath do you think this case will uh, will affect the public opinion about cbs in the long term um i actually think it will it uh, there's no uh, doubt that cbs has uh, suffered some damage um i think it would be more of a teasing than um actually people not choosing to go to cbs or working with people from cbs because of this case but it's it's definitely um um uh, branded cbs as more of a softy will we see more shitstorms like this Probably, uh, but I also th- think that we're going to see a lot of uh, reactions towards these shitstorms, um, and uh, that uh, at some point the public gets tired. Like as as long as people read the articles about this, it's it's going to be on the agenda. When people uh, start saying, "Okay, we don't really care anymore about this," then it's going to stop. But where did all this talk about identity politics come from? Why are we all of a sudden discussing Mexican theme parties at the University of Copenhagen, journalists saying pig colored and wise leaders apologizing for singing a song from the mid-twenties? It's a super American thing. Um, we see that uh, in Denmark we are adapting American trends, especially within the field of identity politics. Um We're sort of just importing problems that are real problems in America and in England, um, but they're not as real here. It's a very um, left-wing phenomenon, and it leads to us uh, publicly discussing issues that are non-existent in Denmark. Um, an example is the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's had a uprising in Denmark as well, but really uh, the issues that this movement is addressing is non-existent in Denmark. In the U.S., the Black Lives Matter movement was uh, a reaction to a huge, huge number of black black people being killed by the American police, um, and then there was created a Black Lives Matter affiliate here in Denmark, where. It, uh, People were doing demonstrations and talking about this publicly in the media, but really it's out of proportions because in Denmark this is not a real a real issue. Uh, there are no statistics that say that people of color in Denmark are more likely to get killed by the police. And the the problem with uh, or the issue with identity politics is that there is this basic assumption that no one can an- uh, understand another person's situation unless two people the two people are completely alike um there's also this assumption uh, in this movement that if you are a white heterosexual male uh you are not capable of relating to whatever issue a woman or a black person or a homosexual or a 
transsexual or whatever um, person might have uh, that you are like blinded to your own privileges. Um, and this way of thinking is sort of like storming out of the very far left wing uh, in Denmark. Um, and it's sort of dangerous because the mindset you apply is that you are not able to think or feel or mean anything about any other situations than your own. So it's a way of someone in society claiming that they're the only ones that can define a problem um, and also f uh, framing that they're the only ones who, who's the owner of the truth. And that's sort of problematic. But um, you can't really argue that racism isn't a thing in Denmark and you can't argue that uh, homophobia isn't a thing in Denmark. Isn't this a relevant discussion to take? Of course, it's a relevant uh, discussion to take and it, it should always be addressed. Let me just clarify this. But what we've seen is that it's been blown out of proportions. We also saw the case at the University of Copenhagen. It, it was about a Mexican theme party and out of 20,000 students, they had two complaints, which led to these guidelines. So 20,000 people have um, to... Uh, Uh, act in a certain way because two people are feeling violated. Or is that really so? Anthropologist Karen Lisa Salomon is associated with both the University of Copenhagen and Quinfo, a national knowledge hub focusing on gender equality and diversity. Furthermore, she has previously launched a massive critique against the Mexican, Jewish and African dress-up parties at University of Copenhagen. She has a very different opinion on the origins of identity politics. I think that identity politics, if anything, has come from the right, from the right side of the polit political spectrum. Even though the uh, most significant conservative media personalities claim the opposite. In Danish politics, identity politics has been used uh, to reorganize Danish identity um, and some important uh, actors on this stage have been Anders Fogh Rasmussen, our former Prime Minister, Pia Kersgaard um, of the Danish Popular Party. Both of them have used um, Danishness as a culturally um, loaded tool to reorganize the political specter. And part of that discussion is really to um, start a debate about exclusion, you know, uh, a wish to create um, borders of who be belongs to us and who shouldn't belong to us, and doing that by cultural parameters. And then afterwards claiming that those people who then fall outside of the parameters are the people who produce um, identity politics. The popular opinion is that these identity politics have in large been imported from North American universities. What do you say to that statement? Or that? I think that we need to look at further behind in history. Um, national romanticism and uh, is it mainly a product of the German romantics related to the creation, formation of German, the, the modern German states and later one state, two states, one state. Real, uh, if you could talk about identity politics and the no modern meaning of it and the nationalist identity politics, it's a creation of, of German thinkers and poets of the 18th century, uh, early 19th century. Um, today, people in Denmark don't question 
that our state has to be nationally defined, that we live in nation states. Well, that's the product of identity politics of the 18th century. The next important positioning of identity politics um, you find in uh, racism. The whole construct of racism is about whether who you are is in your class or whether it's something you can achieve by working hard and being intelligent and so on, or whether you're really, really just born into it by the color of your skin. This is not a construct by the people who had a different color of skin. This is a construct by the people in power. Um, the colonizers produced that. The next important step in identity politics was really Nazism and fascism, uh, where the idea was if you're not with us, you're against us, and then you have to die. Uh, so I think that to say that identity politics came out of American universities in the late 1990s is really very far off. You know, it's it's nothing to do with it. Karen Lisa Salomon also points at the Danish cartoons of Mohammed as a pivotal point in the way we talk about this subject. Um, but I think the whole term of offense uh, has right now um, has become very um, politicized and emotionally important in Denmark because we had the cartoon crisis uh, and uh, the cartoon crisis in some respects functioned as a new formulation of Danish political formations uh, so that people would position themselves, uh, reposition themselves in a way according to their opinion of the cartoon crisis and various aspects of the cartoon crisis. And the cartoon crisis is now, you know, uh, almost 15 years ago. It created a new landscape of how we talk about minorities and majority uh, cultural expressions. And um, I think we can see um, the discussion about um which songs you should sing in university institutions as a repercussion of that. But what makes this case a story that invokes such massive feelings all across the Danish country? Okay, what makes this story almost mythological in quality and importance is that the the object of discussion is really the cultural item of this song. People do not discuss whether we should sing in a public university meeting. That's not even been discussed. If we sing in a public university meeting um, where people are not voluntary participants but are actually there to work and they're paid to work and they have to be present at the meeting, what sort of songs should we sing? This has also not been discussed. Um, you know, there's so many angles that have not been discussed. But what Danes, I think the general population in Denmark, immediately react to is that somebody attacks attacks a song. Somebody has attacked a song which is regarded by many Danes as a s- almost sacred specimen in the Grundvigian church tradition and all sorts of outliers or, or you know, um, side products from this very important historical culture in Denmark, which is the um, Grundvig Protestant tradition, which has also fostered the most important folk high schools in Denmark, and which uh, publishes the almost um, sacred um, songbook 
which is used in churches, in a lot of um, political meetings, and um, in schools, not least, um, as a way of uniting difference in Denmark. And so to most people, this is almost like attacking um, the text of our... I think, actually, it's worse. Attacking this song is almost worse than attacking the foundational text of our national uh, law system or um, attacking the royal family. What is not actually debated, besides the public university aspect, besides, you know, the um, should we even sing at work and should we be forced to sing at work, etc., but what is not being discussed here either is what is this song historically? What's the text really saying? Um, who produced it? In which context? And what's its history? And why is it um, still sung today in certain contexts? Um, this is not discussed. The song is really addressed almost as, um, you could say, an important prayer, which has just become a formula. You don't really consider it anymore, but it has a sacred quality. And so what happened probably in this um, upheaval, you could say almost, is that something taken out of a university context where it's really a discussion about, first of all, should we sing at meetings? If so, what should we sing? Um, should people who are at work be forced to sing or implicitly be forced to hear a song, a certain song at a meeting? Um, and do certain songs, if sung at work, exclude certain co-workers in their text, in their imag imaginary, in their basic assumptions about who are we at work, who are we in this university, who are we in this country? Um, this is not really discussed, this is not addressed. What is addressed is you are attacking something which is sacred to us, which is defining us um, as um, Danes who speak Danish uh, in a certain manner, who have a certain relationship with our um, tradition of poetry and song. We are not analyzing the content of this history at all. We don't really care. But we care about getting together and repeating the ritual of singing a song about our history and us. Furthermore, Karen Lisa Salomon doesn't quite feel that the Danish public has fully understood Kai Hoffman's song. It became quite an argument that the researcher who felt excluded um, didn't understand the song because the song says that the Danish song is like a young blonde girl, not the Danish song, is a blonde girl, or at least that's a way to interpret it. Mm -hmm. Interpret it. Mm -hmm. So don't you think there were quite a lot of debate about the context, content of the song? No. I think that the debate is about how you, without any schooling in either history or um, literary analysis, um, would analyze a an old cultural object in a contemporary context. So I'm not saying that i know that certain of the people who commented on the song had these educational backgrounds, but they didn't really use them actively. Um, so what I'm saying is um, it was a very literal interpretation. It was not an interpretation which really suits an academic context like a university. And I did some research reading up on what have people written over the past uh, hundred years about the song. If you look at the, the, um, uh, the encyclopedic description 
of the um, author, the poet, Kai Hoffman. He was um, really of the 19th century, a spirit of the 19th century, a national romanticist. Um, he was very influenced by um, a lot of the um, movements that also came to define Nazism later. But he was not a Nazi. That's not at all what I'm saying. But he's he is concerned with race. It mentions that he is, um, you know, that's the spirit of the times. He's concerned with national identity. No wonder he lived during both First and Second World Wars. And this song is composed four years after um, the big vote about the border between Germany and Denmark, and it's composed six years after the end of the First World War. So. It says, if you look in that context, it says that he, along with another grand uh, national uh, author, Johannes V. Jensen, were they were both influenced by race theory. Um, this is before, you know, it's before um, the Holocaust and the Second World War, but it's not before eugenics. It's not before race theorizations, and not everybody was a racist in the 20s. So I think people are somehow, um, in these discussions, they are, in a way, um, making Kai Hoffman into something he really never was. Uh, a cute, sweet guy, uh, you know, a pet, writing a cutie, petty song about uh, Danish national language and identity. But the song is really a product of the 1920s, with a lot of... Um, ideological um, influence from the previous century. Racism, uh, again, racism mainly about the colonies. You know, it's not about, um, it's not Holocaust racism, it's colonial racism and uh, a deep concern with founding national identity in the earth, in the blood, um, in uh, the Viking honor in the song, Kai Hoffman anchors Danish national identity in um, the ground, in the church. He's talking about bells, in, um, in the sword and the hardening of the soul over the sacred fire. He's talking about um, a Danishness with time being less tough, being, becoming softer. And there is an implication that this might not be so nice in a way, but that's civilization. But it really, the whole song implicitly refers both to the hardening of nature, how nature functions to harden the person, to, to create uh, the national character. So there's nothing strange about it. It doesn't make Hoffman deeply problematic. But we could discuss whether this song really fits um, as a morning song at a public institution which wants to be internationally and culturally and ethnically inclusive today. Uh, and if we choose to sing it, which I think we definitely can, um, we just maybe need to uh, frame it a little. Unlike Anne-Christine Cramont, Karen Lisa Salomon feels that the actions and the wording of Mass Moorhorst is a necessity for the image of CBS. Um, and I think it's re as uh, I think it was probably Mass Moorhorst who said 
um, that there is. Uh, did he speak about home blindness? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I think the matter of home blindness um, becomes more important if you have the ambition of be- being an internationally minded, internationally outreaching, inclusive, multicultural. Um, public university which will attract international students who will also pay for their stay here. I mean, there's also an economy in this. As there are um, lots of large uh, business corporations and organizations who have certain ethics about how they are inclusive in their communication and so on, not just because they're good and nice, but because they really do want to attract customers from all walks of life. So this is the end of the podcast, but undoubtedly not the end of debates such as this. Actually, you need not look any further than the current case at University of Copenhagen, where a teacher is under fire for using statistics which distinguish between males and females. Debates like this is happening at the Danish universities, and I for one didn't see a single CBS student or employee protesting against the apology in front of CBS. I hope this podcast managed to shed some light on the case that incited both politician and internet warrior alike. Until next time, if you like what you heard, don't hesitate to tell everyone about us. You have been listening to CBS Wire.